Hi everyone, Steve Bennett here. Our episode today is all about 340B. If you're in the community health center world, you know what this is. If you're not, you're going to want to hear this conversation. Sheila and I are joined by Colleen Myman, who is a national health policy advisor that works with community health centers every day. She is the expert on health policy that impacts centers and is the go-to person for 340B, leading the battle to save this important program for the 30 million patients we serve throughout the country every year. Plus, she's got a lot of war stories that make this a really good conversation. It's a good one. (laughs) All right, so here we are at the end of day one of our annual conference, and somehow we found time to sit down and chat. Colleen, how you doing? I'm doing great, but I wasn't one of the ones having to run around like crazy all day <laughs> right. today. So kudos, my hat's off to you guys. Although you're one of those people that every time you walk into a crowd or every time you turn a corner, somebody's <laughs> coming up to you to talk. Somebody's got some question, and it's always so nice when it's not about 340B these days. <laughs> so well, she, well, she's definitely not going to love us today. I know, That's speaking okay. of. Uh, because that is one of the hot <laughs> topics still. I mean... Oh, I'm sure, you know, we've discussed this. We would love to have a day where 340B is not the topic du jour for everybody. But I think we all realize funding in any vein for community health centers is in jeopardy right now. And um, that's really why I think there are a lot of folks attending the conference, learning. Uh, I think those are that's the hot topic moving forward, actually, is how do they survive whatever the changes are going to be. Yep, I'm actually just working on a session for the next uh, 340B grantee conference, and the title I came up with was uh, Leave No Stone Unturned. Hmm. The idea is what is every possible thing you could be looking at, in this case in your pharmacy world, to try to make up for these shortfalls that you're experiencing in 340B, to make up for the fact that we don't know what is going to happen with 330 funding at this point, but... um, Significant base increases don't seem particularly op- like uh, a strong option at the moment. Um, and so just trying to be creative on a level, I haven't seen health centers need to be creative in a long time. So we, we, we call ourselves no acronyms allowed and 340B, I guess, <laughs> is not an acronym. It's not an acronym. It sounds like one, but it does. W- what is 340B? 340B is a program that was so kind of not thoroughly thought through when they wrote it back in 1992 that they literally didn't give it a name. Right. So it refers to the section of the Public Health Service Act, Section 340B of the Public Health Service Act. It requires drug manufacturers to, if they want to participate and be able to sell their drugs to Medicare or Medicaid, then they have to offer discounts on those drugs to certain types of safety net providers like community health centers. Right. But increasingly over the last decade, decade and a half, 340B and the, the savings that health centers get from that um, often are more important than their 330 grant. Really? Yeah. In terms of the overall r- revenue comparison? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the best data we have came out of a health center network last year, and they estimate that on average... 
um, 340B brings in 16% more per patient than the 330 grant does. Now, we're just talking about the base grant. Right. But the reason I would um, much rather <laughs> advocate for base grants than I would for 340B or why it's easier, you know, base grants is just Congress. Now, I'm not underestimating the importance of dealing with the challenges of dealing with Congress, but you know when the money's going to run out. You know who is in charge of getting you funding again, and, and there's a backstop program to help you tide over until Congress gets this act together, known as the Bureau of Primary Health Care, where I used to work. In the 340B world, we are at the whims of the decisions, unannounced decisions of so many players. A drug manufacturer that you never heard of, if you're not a pharmacist, suddenly announces you can't get 340B discounts unless you um, at contract pharmacies anymore. Or you can only get their 340B price drugs if you go through this one particular distributor. Or, oh, they owe you money because they overcharged you, but if you don't file your claim within four weeks, they're just going to wipe, wipe, wipe it clean and not pay you back. We don't know from day to day. PBMs are another one, too. Pharmaceutical benefits managers. I, I like no She caught herself. I did. But there's just, we don't know from day to day what, what the next shoe is going to be that's going to drop. Okay, so 340, so as the non-expert in the room. Okay, so 340B is a mechanism by which safety net players like community mm -hmm. health centers can access drugs. Mm hmm at significantly reduced prices. Yes. So is there a cost? I mean, does this show up on the federal budget at all? Like, No. There's it, no cost to this for the taxpayer. There is no direct cost for the taxpayer other than a few million dollars, which in Washington terms is very small, is nothing, yeah. for the agency that oversees the program. But where I thought you were going, people are often like, well, how do you get savings from right, a program right, that's right. about discounts? Well, let's just say you have a drug where the regular price is $100, and normally the insurance company pays you $100. Well, if the 340B price, let's say, is $70. Uh -huh. So if we pay $70 and the insurance company pays us $100, we are $30 ahead. Right. And then, then let's just say that, so you do that for a couple people, so that you have like $60 in savings, right? But then the next patient who comes along is uninsured. Mm. And you still have to pay $70 for them. But that patient can only afford to pay $10 because that's our mission. We're going to only charge them $10. So we're short that 60 between what we paid for it and what the patient could pay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where the savings come into play. The savings we accrued from the insured patients offset the losses we have in the uninsured patients. Right, right. Um, and so before the creation of 340B, and it was actually Larry Peterson was one of the people who first taught me this, Larry from, from Florida here, almost no health centers offered pharmacy because they couldn't. Sure. They just were losing their shirts over it, and they could not possibly stay afloat um, with, with pharma if, if they were going to be offering pharmacy at a level that their patients could afford. So the introduction of 340B makes pharmacy possible, makes Absolutely. it a, a financial possibility for community health centers. So, so then, then why are we talking about it today? Like, what is the challenge that that health centers are facing? The challenge is, and and I will full full disclosure here. I was a federal employee for two decades, so I walk and talk like a Fed still. <laughs> 
but the challenge. We hold that against you. <laughs> thank you. You're very kind. Um, the challenge is that the 340B statute not only does it not have a name, right? It doesn't give the agency any ability to enforce anything, hmm. and. When there is not clarity, when there aren't clear rules, what tends to happen in this country is people will take that lack of clarity and they will go to one extreme or another based on what what benefits them. Um, A very clear-cut example is that there is a health center in South Carolina who, uh, the agency that oversees this, HRSA, they tried to put some rules around when health centers and others can use contract pharmacy. That health center in South Carolina thought the rules were too tight. So they sued HRSA and they won. What they thought would happen would be great. We're going to make the rules much looser now because HRSA can't enforce anything. Well, what also happened at the same time was the drug manufacturers were watching and they said, wait, HRSA can't enforce anything? Well, then we're going to make the rules way tighter than they used to be. And that's where we are now with 26 manufacturers, at least for hospitals, uh, restricting access to contract pharmacies. It goes back to the fact that there's, there's way too much gray area in the statute, and there is the agency has no authority to flesh out any of that gray area. But aren't there other players in this that are taking advantage? I mean, it's not just the relationship between the drug manufacturers Mm -hmm. and community health centers, right? Oh, no. In fact, that's probably a pretty strong relationship if you took out the other players, right? Like, like who's Mm -hmm. messing this up? I'd say there's a a lot of people messing this up. Um, Arguably, and, and I don't know enough to have an informed opinion about this, but... Uh, health centers are only about 5% of program sales. We're, we're tiny. Right. About 78% of program sales are the, the hospitals that treat a disproportionate share of low-income patients. And there are a lot of people who argue that they are taking way more savings than they should be and not investing it in services that expand access to low-income patients. So we're seeing a lot of of complaints about that. Um, we are seeing the pharmaceutical benefit managers. They're basically the insurance arm, the arm of an insurance company that covers pharmacy. And they're the ones who set the rules about, no, you have to try this generic drug before we'll approve you for a, um, a brand name or, you know, this is a $5 copay and this is a $30 copay. They've figured out how to get their hands on our 340B savings. Hmm. So have some of the contract pharmacy groups figured that out. Um, and so we as health centers are dealing with these outside groups trying to get our savings. Some of the manufacturers just saying, well, we're going to shut it down so you get very few savings at all, at least in contract pharmacies. Um, and an agency who that can just stand back and say, we know this isn't how the program is supposed to run, but we are powerless to do anything about it.
interesting enough, it, uh, there, it wasn't too long ago where the drug manufacturers were scrambling to improve their image with the whole EpiPen situation. And, yes. uh, you know, there were several of them that even put in some of the, uh, you know, went over and beyond putting it in their, I guess, you, easier way of describing it. It's like a charter that we will make sure that we do not overcharge those populations that are considered vulnerable and or underserved um, because they got a black eye during that. And now it seems like just so many years later, they have mm -hmm. just ignored that entire time period and those things that are still on most of their websites to now do exactly what they said they were never going to do. And that is hurt the patient. Absolutely. I, I agree with you, and I, I'd say there's a couple reasons behind that. Um, first of all, there's just a couple companies that make EpiPens, and I, I know I tend to be guilty of referring to, to pharma as like all of the manufacturers are one gigantic whole, but it turns out there's at least 600 different drug manufacturers in the United States. Wow. And so, and if you count their subsidiaries, it gets up into the thousands. Um, and so you can have some acting one way and others acting the other way and just not paying a lot of it, you know, and, and it gets very confusing because one group gets the headlines. The other thing I would say is that Medicare has now been around for 60 years. Last summer, summer 22, when the Inflation Reduction Act passed, that, among other things, that law gave Medicare the ability to negotiate prices on a very small number of drugs to begin with. It, ten drugs the first year, I think it goes to 50 after five or ten years. But that was the biggest hit financially, politically, that pharma has taken in the 60-year history of the Medicare program. And interesting enough, it, it is really something that if, if you pay attention impacts a certain demographic you're looking at boomers which right now absolutely is the you know 65 and up largest group in retirement going into retirement i think in less than 10 years they're all going to be retired absolutely in some way shape or form um do you think that that may be the the pressure like aarp and groups like that are putting pressure on their um, delegation in D.C. to make some changes? I think they have always been putting pressure, but I think the demographics are undeniable at this point. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who looks at what's going on with the Medicare Trust Fund, who's looking what's going on with the, with the aging of the baby boomers, knows that, you know, we're getting to a point where almost all we pay for in this country, it sometimes feels like, are the big health care programs, Medicaid, Medicare, veterans defense and there's almost there's so little else and whenever we squeeze we keep squeezing the everything else including health center and national health service core funding um and congress is really realizing that we do have to start looking hard at how much the the mandatory programs are paying for drugs if we're going to be able to stay fiscally responsible at all so knowing that we're heading that way mm -hmm. and you know, a couple of generations later, we're going to be, you know, entertaining the largest <laughs> generational group that we've ha ever seen. What are some, who are some of the partners that health centers can, can go to like, you know, 
the AARPs of the world that can give them that clout, that maybe that support in D.C. to maybe get some things done that might help community health centers. Because let's let's face it, there are a lot of community health centers that help that demographic as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's a demographic that a lot of them aren't retiring at 65 because they can't afford to. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for those um, resources where they spend less or, or spend nothing at all mm-hmm. because they've got to decide, and, and we tout that quite often, between paying rent, eating, or paying mm-hmm. for medications. And they have several of them. You know, most people over 65 are at least two on average or three. Mm-hmm. And um, just trying to figure out if there is a, you had mentioned earlier, is there a way, what is another option? I, a couple options that come to mind. The first one is we are still seeing a large drop-off in, the, in our patients when they hit Medicare age, okay, which is just really a shame because they've been our patients. They've obviously liked us, but, you know, once they get Medicare, suddenly they've got all these people advertising. Nobody particularly was nearly as interested in covering them before or getting their business before until they got Medicare. So one of the first things I think... Um, the health centers can do is to be really conscious about the fact that once people turn 64 and a half, they're getting wooed from every direction. And we need to do our own wooing to keep those patients with us. I think for their sake and, and for our sake. The other thing is health centers are truly one of the few bipartisan issues in Washington. We continue to have a reputation as straight shooters, okay? Yes, CMS will think that we never get enough funding, speaking as a former CMS person, et cetera. <laughs> you know, people have their things. But the bottom line is we are viewed as straight shooters, and I think it's incredibly important to retain that, that um, reputation to not unnecessarily, say, antagonize other groups that might be helpful to us um, to try to keep a very bipartisan approach when we approach members of Congress because then um, we have more people who support us and then we get taken seriously when people want answers they they still tend to come to health centers because they they trust health centers as speaking honestly and directly about the needs of these types of populations it was interesting um you know, Sheila and I and others joined you in, in D.C., um, what, March, was it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and had a number of meetings with, with representatives and, and uh, two senators from, from Florida. Um, the degree by which or to which um, our elected representatives and their staffs were up to speed on the challenges of 340B was surprising to me. Yep. And, and maybe that's just you know an indictment of me, but um, they seem to be paying attention to this and its, its impact on, on health centers. Would you agree? I would agree that just in maybe the past year and a half that has started turning around. Um, it's partially not knowing and partially a not wanting to know mm. on the Hill 
The best description I ever heard of 340B from a Hill staffer was that it is a hornet's nest made out of a made out of bees' nest made out of wasps' nest. Okay, <laughs> I mean it's it's far beyond the third rail of health, health policy. The yeah. third rail will kill you quickly, but 340B <laughs> will kill you in a very long and painful process, is what I've been told. So for a long time, people the advice people got was just try to stay away from it. All right. And this is where I give health centers a lot of credit. We have made our voice heard that we're sorry, Congress, you can't stay away from this. We know it's ugly. We know that this pits some of the most largest, most influential groups in the country against each other. You have dish hospitals, which are in the, dis the, the hospitals that care for large numbers of uninsured patients that are in low income. They're in 430 out of 435 districts against pharmaceutical manufacturers, which are some of the largest employers in a lot of places and extremely wealthy. You've got safety net providers. You have pharmaceutical benefit managers. You have health insurers. Nobody wants to walk into the middle of that. Right. But what is great, I will never forget a, minute, uh, a moment about two months ago, three months ago, we had been making the rounds of the group of six in the Senate, and um, they just kept saying, we don't feel an urgency to deal with this issue. We don't feel an urgency to deal with this issue. And I was thinking to myself, I feel an urgency to not pick, to stop the urge to pick up and throw something, but I didn't, I was very well behaved. <laughs> um, and about two, three months ago, there was, it was right after the, whichever manufacturer it was, where it really limited our access to inhalers, a key staff person said, what are your patients doing? And we responded, they're having difficulty breathing. Right. And she looked at us all and she said, this is feeling more urgent. We're going to have to do something here. And she is moving on things. But my point is that that is where health centers have come in. They are, I know that state, she hears twice a day from her health centers about that. We are trusted as straight shooters, as really watching out for our patients, not for ourselves. And... Um, so I think they finally realized because they're feeling the heat. One of my favorite quotes about life in Washington is from a, uh, not, oh, what's his name? A former Senator Dirksen. When I feel the heat, I see the light. <laughs> and we are finally getting them to feel the heat and they're finally starting to see the light. So, but I think for a long time, everyone was told just run as fast as you can in the other direction. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I also like to think you have basically the start to an election cycle going on right now. Mm -hmm. And for me, I always feel like uh, from the marketing and communication standpoint, when you're looking at advocacy, you know, that's where you definitely have to make sure your patient stories are heard. You know, Absolutely. like you said, our patients aren't breathing. Yeah. Um, those are votes. Yes. And... You know, I was, I'm always like, when that cycle started, and it really started a few months ago when people yeah. started throwing in their hats for president and everything, I was like, it's so it begins. And I, so now you need to really push your patient stories and talk about, hey, whoever's supporting us and supporting these issues, that's, that's mm -hmm. someone you want to support yourself. Personally, do that. As a health center, it's getting those stories out there. So you kind of subliminally connect the fact that if you don't solve this problem, these people are probably going to support someone who will. 
Exactly. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. That, And one thing that um, I've told people is it's very easy to get confused between there's 340B and there's ASAP and there's 340C and there's the PROTECT Act and there's the METS, you know, don't worry about those fine details. There are lobbyists who are paid to deal with that every day. Be t reach out to Congress, reach out to the people who are running, be tight about the what. The what is this program is essential to our health center and patients, not just for pharmaceutical services, but for all the other services that that, that the savings support in our health center. And you can be loose about the how. You heard that old expression, tight about the what, loose about the how. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the details between the Matsui bill and the Thune bill or whatever it is, okay? Don't worry about that. Stick to the what. We need help. Our patients are having difficulty breathing. That is what will resonate with people. Um, and that is what will get them to have the, you know, the backbone to walk into the hornet's nest made out of wasp nest. <laughs>
without this this revenue source. All right. That's again, talk about the what, don't worry about the how. But um, you know, unfortunately, Congress and the press are similar in that they kind of sometimes they don't pay attention until there's what I call blood on the floor. You know, they wait. Mm -hmm. Yep. We don't want it to get that bad. And one thing that frustrates me is. Journalists used to call me looking for stories, horrible stories from health centers. And I'm like, you don't get it. A health center staff will twist themselves into pretzel knots three times to avoid the blood on the floor. That's the story. Right. But no, they want the blood on the floor story. So It's not sexy enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what you need to do is really emphasize what will be lost, Congress, if you do not act. This will be on you. And you cannot claim that you weren't informed. So... I've heard you describe health centers as as collateral damage mm -hmm. and and a battle of greed and a battle of, of other players. Mm -hmm. Right. Is part of the solution. Figuring out how to extract ourselves from this in the first place. And, you know, so if it's not 340 B, it's 340 H or 340, right, right. you know, whatever the next available letter is where we just create something new that says specifically this is community health centers. This is how we're going to function with with mm -hmm. with pharmacy or with with big pharma and 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 start afresh like what does that look like that is certainly an option and that's something that's been talked about for a good seven eight years um just by way of background i always say that my th favorite three report or approach to fixing 340b is the one most likely to get through congress the fastest that's going to help <laughs> health centers right. okay yeah. so what it was this morning may be very different from this afternoon sure, sure. Mm -hmm. so um so i never say what my favorite one is until i until i've read the <laughs> right. latest news okay it's the one that passes <laughs> yeah <laughs> just fix us now fast thank yeah. you um but that is certainly one that has been talked about for a long time. You know, 78% of sales in 340B are to these large hospitals, mostly urban. Yep. Another 10% are to other types of hospitals, small rural ones, cancer hospitals, children's hospitals. Uh, then the remaining 12% are what we call grantees. Grantees are groups that get federal grants. I'm looping lookalikes in there. So, but... Yeah. Um, so we're in there, Ryan White clinics are in there, STD clinics, family planning clinics, hemophilia, et cetera. By and large, we are not the one, we the grantees are not the ones that people have had any problems with. It's really been a battle between the dish hospitals and maybe the cancer and children's ones and the manufacturers. And so what I've been saying for a long time is we're like the, 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 battle whatever or i guess the pawns in the game you know we're the ones taking the hits we're, but the, we're front not line. the problem yeah we're the front line people right. we're not the problem and so there is definitely something to be said for a bill that just says let's get the good guys off the battlefield out of the line of fire give them some protections make sure that they have to you know abide by good guy practices showing what they're doing with the savings to benefit low-income patients etc um, and then you go, you big guys, you go off and fight that, but don't make us be collateral damage in your war. So I, I wonder just in terms of, of that messaging, because I mean, look to the average person, um, you know, things that benefit a hospital, things that benefit cancer centers. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. Right. So what is it that, that is, is happening? And, and is it that 
that the benefits may be for, for a few of their patients, but they're, they're using it where there's already profit established? I mean, yeah, what does no. that look how like? How do you, ha I, yeah, that's a very good question. There was actually a New York Times article yeah. last September about this, about a hospital called Bon Secours in Richmond, Virginia. And I, I do not promise to know the whole story. I'm only going to say what was reported in the Times. But very briefly, this hospital system had, let's say, five hospitals in relatively high-income areas, mm -hmm. and it acquired a sixth hospital in a low-income majority-minority area. It was actually the hospital that was fa historically black, founded by doctors when if you were black, you couldn't go to the other hospitals. Right. Okay. So the five hospitals in better areas, better higher-income areas, had... Um, all of these, they let's say they each had 10 specialty clinics or specialist cl outpatient clinics associated with them. Well, they technically linked all of those 50 outpatient clinics from the higher income areas underneath the one low income hospital. Hmm. So they got 340B savings from all of these higher income areas, which is, you know, you can have some questions about, but the real zinger was during the time that by their own records over a decade, Bon Secours cleared $1 billion, with a B in hmm. 340B savings over 10 years. During that same time, they eliminated any outpatient clinics associated with the historically black hospital. They eliminated the ICU. They eliminated, by the time the article was written, the only thing left at that historically black hospital was um, the emergency room and the pharmacy. Wow. And there were a lot of stories that people from that emergency room couldn't even, when the ERs, when they sent them by ambulance to one of the other hospitals, they couldn't get in. Wow. So the question was, um, and Bon Secours was quoted as saying, we invested $8 million in that facility, which sounds good until you compare it to the $1 billion that they brought in on 340B, which they would not have had if had not been for that facility. Right. That's... That article, you can't go anywhere in D.C. without people talking about the Bon Secours article. Nobody has ever accused health centers of anything like that. Given our, our regulations, it would never happen. Sure. Um, and that's why there has been definitely a call to pull us out. That don't don't sweep us up under the same on you know the same yeah. umbrella. So so let it's not our fight. What's happening exactly. with hospitals with others? And, and we don't need to have an opinion about it, yeah. but like, let's fix what needs to fi be fixed for right. us. And the other piece I would add is of all the types of, they call them covered entities is the fancy name, but all the providers who are eligible for 340B, health centers are by far the most dependent on contract pharmacy. They're like 60% six, like of our drugs are dispensed through contract pharmacies. For hospitals, it's like 20%. Hmm. So not only are we the ones taking the hits on the front line, but we're taking hits a lot harder than anybody else's. Right. Um, and so that's why there is just a call to be like, we're getting hurt the worst and we're not the problem. Right. So. Yeah, it's amazing that um, you alluded to it a few minutes ago, transparency. Yes. Because based on our structure as it is, we have to be transparent about what you know, health centers Mm -hmm. Many health centers are doing with exactly all funding sources. Yep. Um, so it always interests me that they keep coming back to that as a reason why you need to be more transparent. I'm like, well, how much more transparent can you be? 
and it, it, right. and I'm always wondering, um, is that something that we, uh, that community health centers have to focus on because they're in this mess with everybody else, or if they were pulled out, it's less of an issue because of what's already in place? It will definitely, I, I truly believe that transparency requirements are coming on 340B one way or another. State of Minnesota has already passed them on everyone. Maine uh, has passed them on just hospitals. Um, they will be a lot less for us than they will be, say, for hospitals, but there still be, will be some for us. Uh, two things we do not report on right now are the total quantity of 340B savings in dollars. I think that's going to be coming. In fact, that's going to be coming in Medicaid if the House has its way, or actually the House and the Senate, if they can pass a bill, that, that will be coming later this year. Um, the other thing will be some way of saying what we use those savings for. I'm not worried about knowing, you know, that I, I'm worried about the paperwork exercise of that. It's just going to be another reporting requirement, another thing to get done. But we don't have anything to hide. That's not what I'm worried right. about. Um, I'm not sure I can say that for all other providers. Let's just say the Bon Secours people, the New York Times people did a lot of digging to come up with those numbers. Yeah, yeah those, it was incredible to read that and and to just think that they're like we didn't do anything wrong we followed the rules and and arguably yes they, they didn't they do did. anything wrong right. but when you're trying to uh, come out and fight a battle to get funding and to keep funding and to keep a valuable program right it yeah. it, it everybody gets lumped together right. and and i think from my perspective the media relations perspective of it all i, I it really is disappointing in journalism when they don't they don't define that properly. They yeah. they don't say, well, this is just one group in this, you know, battle in 340B. This is not all of these others who are doing good things. And they paint us all with the same brush. Correct. Exactly. And it's very frustrating. <laughs> I, I know that uh, you're running. We, we, That's okay. You know, you're you're very popular here which is, which is, <laughs> yes. which is great so hey as, i'm a facker right 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 <laughs> so as we wrap up sure. how hopeful are you about this the, the issue of 340b are, are we going to get there i am hopeful in the senate mm -hmm. in the u.s senate i'm more concerned about the u.s house the house you know all it takes is one staffer to get in the way and there's one staffer there who is insistent that he will not let anything through on 340B until he has 100% transparency on everybody and sees the resulting reports, which is uh, four years. Right. Um, I am hopeful, I am optimistic that the Senate is really going to try its darndest. And I think, you know, the group of six senators, it's a bipartisan group, they understand the value of contract pharmacy to us. I do think they will do their best. Um, I think what comes out, yeah, it's going to have some pain in the next stuff for us, mostly reporting requirements, maybe a small user fee, that sort of stuff. Um, I, but I think what comes out will certainly be something we would be happy to live with compared to the current chaos. Um, I think it's, this, it's the house I'm more worried about. But I would just ask everybody, please keep up the drumbeat. Like, nobody in Congress wants to go near this. And they're only going near it because they're just tired of hearing from us. Right. And you know what? Let them so keep be being tired of hearing from us. We need this fixed. 
because if this isn't fixed by the beginning of the year, it's yeah, yeah we're looking to get worse. Yeah, yeah. we're going to have to find it's going to get a lot worse. We're going to have to find new revenues, new yeah. revenue streams. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Colleen, yeah. thank you. Absolutely. This is great. You're, you're so informative. And, and you know, I, I after our we've spent a little bit of time together, not not nearly as much as, as others. But, um, you know, after one of our meetings in, in D.C., I walked out of there and I said to Sheila, she's a good storyteller. She, <laughs> she knows she knows how to stay on message. And, and so circle them right back. Yep. Yep. So once upon a very long time ago, back when we still you know rode our dinosaurs to get to work, right. I actually worked on Capitol Hill as an L.A. Okay. As, a, as a legislative assistant, yeah, so, so I've been on the other end of that. Which so you know what needs to be heard, and yeah, yes, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Thank, yeah, you, so. Th- thank you so much for for taking some time, and, and absolutely, you guys are awesome, and just just keep it up. Absolutely, <laughs> this is part of us trying to keep that up. Oh, yep. you guys are awesome. I would clone you guys if I could. <laughs> <Likewise>. <laughs> I haven't figured that out yet. Likewise, <laughs> oh, thank you.